0: All right, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the word of the Lord. Thank you for saving Paul's life and using him powerfully to minister to the Gentiles. Thank you for the revelation that you gave him that were penned in these letters that we could read today over 2,000 years later. And they are still active and they still are powerful and they still transform. And so we thank you for that breath of heaven as we read these words to not only inspire and challenge us, not only to correct and and do what's necessary, as all scripture does, to to speak life over us, but we thank you for it really dividing in the depths of our soul what is you and what is not, what is your way of doing things and what is not your way. And and God, may it bring us into a deeper place of intimacy with you, and and may it cause us to be joined together as the body of Christ, to to not only love one another and to Unite for your purposes and for your glory, but may we draw strength from that place of communion, mm-hmm. and may we find that we do things better when we're together than when we try to do it by ourselves, and that our need is not only for you, but it's for one another to draw strength and life from one another. I just pray that that as we read these scriptures today and, and look at the call of God on our lives and look at our identity in you, that we would see the bigger picture, that we would see just how much our lives matter in the scope of not only here and now, but in the scope of eternity, and that's why Jesus placed such a high value on us, because He recognized and saw uh, what was in the Father's heart, and that was He would have sons and daughters forever and ever, and so we're grateful for the eternal life that we have in you, we're grateful Father for the eternal impact that we can make in this short period of breath that we have on the earth, and so... May we number our days, help us to to recognize our purpose, help us to be solidified in our identity, and let us walk worthy of this great call that you paid such a high price for us to be able to do it. And so thank you, thank you for grace, thank you for strength, thank you for Holy Spirit led discussion, Holy Spirit led um, really living for us to be lit le- to, to be led by you in all the things that we do. And so thank you for doing that in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so in the first three chapters, we discussed um, our identity in Christ. We talked about us being joint heirs with Christ, being partakers of this heavenly calling. We talked about the division that had been in the church up until that point between the Gentiles and the Jews and how Paul was calling them all to experience who we truly are in Christ and so that we would step into our true identity and, um, and that can only be understood as we walk intimately with the Lord, so as we see Him, as He really is, that's when we begin to see who we really are. And so part of the dynamic of that true identity is also um, being able to not only see Christ as He truly is, but also being able to see our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as they truly are. And so that's part of the um, topic of, of chapter 4 is how, how do we walk worthy of our call, and part of that is recognizing gifts and graces on one another. And this can be a challenge because uh, it's easy to embrace the things of the Lord as far as Him, him He Himself because He was perfect without sin, um, didn't make mistakes, uh, was completely holy and, and the life giver, and, and yet we know that we all have tendencies to go our own way and to still walk in our fallen nature instead of who we truly are, and so there is the everyday reality that your fellow believer can fail you. The Lord will never fail you, but certainly you or I can fail one another. We can have a bad day. We can have um, where our minds are not focused on the right things. That we're not pursuing Christ in in all the things that we're doing. That. We could be driven by selfish motives or selfish agendas. You know, there's, there's all these things that can trip us up in how we walk together. And so Paul begins this chapter after his powerful prayer of how God is exceedingly, abundantly, above all things, able to do what? To do these things more than we could think or even ask. But it's based on the power that's working in us. And so we've got to yield to the Holy Spirit. We've got to allow Him to have His way it's it's not like the the idea that okay, god is you know we talked about this piece briefly last last week but under the calvinistic idea that god is sovereign and therefore everything is god's will we recognize that there is a participation that we must do and that while we we certainly do uh, agree that the lord is sovereign and His ability to orchestrate things in history, to orchestrate things in order for Christ to come. They were all divinely manifested, divinely appointed, specific times and seasons in in history that God had set in place, and man could not alter those things. But we also recognize that in the scope of history, that there are things that we can do to choose to be a part of God's plan or not. There There are certainly aspects, and Jesus would not call them to turn, if they did not have the ability to turn. And and part of the grace of God is certainly the work of the Holy Spirit to convict. It certainly is the, the outward flow of us choosing to co-labor with the Holy Spirit and go out and declare the gospel, go out and minister to people, go out and share the words the Lord gives us, the things that we, we study in Scripture. That That's all aspect of His grace and it's all part of His sovereign hand working in and through us. But there is, the, there is the, the participation that we must give. And so here in verse 1 of chapter 4, after this powerful prayer, and to whom all this power, all this, this love, all this um, connections and pieces are coming together that's found in Christ. He says to them in verse 21, To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And he says, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. The Passion translation says it this: It says, "I, as a prisoner of the Lord, I plead with you to walk holy in a way that is suitable to your high rank." Which makes sense in the way that it translates it here, because what was he talking to them about in, in chapters one, two, and three about how how great a place that you have in Christ? right, that you're co-heirs with Christ, that you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, that you are a partaker of the divine call and the promises of God, that, you know, all the things that we we saw in, just in chapter one, those nine places where they, they tell us to be in Christ and the resulting effects that all heavenly resources are available to you in Christ, you know, th- there are so many, and so because you've been given this elevated position, this high rank, walk worthy of it, is what he's saying, and so What you're going to see in chapter 4 is really a practical application to the prayer he's prayed. Really, He he started the prayer in chapter 1, then he talked about some stuff, and then finished the prayer in chapter 3. And now he's going to talk to us about this practical way of how do we live out our true identity? How do we walk out our identity in Christ? And so you're going to see... Um, some translations translate it walk. Some of them talk about living worthy. Um, uh, in either case, it's it's both true. So when we talk about our walk with the Lord or walking worthy of our call, walk is something in, in their time and frame. That's how you got anywhere you went, right? And It's not like they had a train or a bus. I mean, they didn't have boats back then, but um, they didn't have vehicles or cars. They could ride a mule or something every once in a while or a donkey or or sometimes a horse if you were in certain parts of Arabia, right? But the, the, the mode of getting where you needed to go was your walk. And so he's saying that you live with purpose. So when he talks about your walk, he's talking about living with purpose, living, understanding your identity. We don't want to just just be as far as just sitting there and we're just here. But we want to, we want to understand. That's what drives humanity, even from a young age, The questions arise: Why am I here? What's the purpose? What are we supposed to be doing? Our hearts yearn yearn to understand who we are, where we come from, and we see that throughout history, that um, different people groups and so forth, that they would long to know who they were, where were they going, how did they get? And then when, when people groups lost who they were, they lost sight of that reality. We can also see the effects of that on communities, on nations, when we lose sight of. Who you are, who your true identity is. Of course, in the scriptures we see that the ultimate identity of who you are, the the higher purposes in which you were created. That you that you see that and find that in scripture. Now we can humanism tries to tries to make certain things appealing to make you feel better about yourself. And so, just to sidetrack before I go into this dynamic, like you have different movements in the earth right now that is tapping into the God. Um, purpose to change the world to create a better world, this idea, and so you have things such as socialism that comes up that promises what like a utopian type society where everything is fair and so it 's driven it 's driven by something because it, it, that would that wouldn 't be attractive unless it was something that would have been a place in the heart of man, right. Or you take like for example the environmentalist things. They think, well, if I can do this, I can change the world. I can heal the planet. So it's being driven by something that's positioned in the heart, but it's twisted, right? They take it and they, they they push God out of the mix of it, and then they try to do it in and through our own efforts. And man, we know man can do quite a bit if they work together through their own efforts. We know according to Scripture, the Tower of Babel that God came in and dispersed their lanes. He said, and and even He quoted. He said. He said if we don't do something, they'll achieve their mission. There's nothing that will hold them back. There's nothing that will hold them back, exactly. And so unity has power, correct? And so he's going to build on this concept here, and we'll talk about this. But unity, when you get a group of people working together, there is power in it. But for what purpose? And for what reason? And that 's why it's so essential that we understand who we are, because then, if we don't understand who we are, as we unite together, we can be sucked into a path of pursuing something without God and the most scary thing in, in the world is you could be doing something good in the name of good, even you could even call it in the name of God, but be doing it outside of God, right because and the, I'm <clears throat> It's good, is that's right. Yeah, that's John. Yep, that's John and so, and so the you know the example that my mind goes to scripturally is God gave Moses an opportunity. He said, "I will send you into the land, but I'm not going with you." And it was really a test. It was a test. And I'll do everything. I'll do everything I said I would do, but I'm not going with you. It was a test for Moses. Was was Moses only there? Because of what God could do? Or was he there because he wanted God? And what we see, what we can even see here in America, in many ways, is we want what all God can do, but we don't want God in the mix. Right? And so this is the, this is the, this is not a new struggle, this is still the struggle. You know, this is from the beginning of time, Adam and Eve's sin was what? He said, if you'll eat of this fruit, you will be like God. You'll fulfill your identity, but you're doing it outside of God. You'll do it, not God. You following me? And so, the, so what we have running in our veins is we have the Adamic nature of doing things my way and even trying to do God things, but without Him without that communion with Him, without that exchange of life with Him, without that dependency and trust, and you know that walking with God. And then we have Christ who says, I do nothing except what I hear my Father say. I don't say nothing unless I hear my Father say it. I don't do anything unless I see my Father doing it. And He brought about this place that was opposed in society, especially in Rome. And one of the things that it was considered when we'll read here. He talks about in humility. Humility in the Roman Empire was considered a vice, not a virtue. It was only something that was supposed to be used for a slave, and so therefore it was it was considered a vice. Isn't that, isn't that strange? Humility was considered a vice. Pride, it was considered weakness, and pride was actually considered a virtue in Roman culture. Okay, so here let's read let's read the verse and let's see. That was kind of a brief um, explanation around the thought of the day, around the culture of the day, and even how it ties in today. We see these same mindsets and so forth. He says, and let me read this out of the the Living Translation, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. In the New King James, it says it this way: it says, with all lowliness and gentleness, this is verse 2, with long-suffering bearing with one another in love. So here he's describing to the Gentiles: so these are the Gentiles in the Roman world, under the Roman culture. He starts the very first sentence of this, I a prisoner. So a prisoner's lower than a slave. He's, he's in there. He's not even doing any work for them. He's, he can't even have the freedom to go out there and do some work. He's stuck in prison. And he's telling them the way you walk worthy of the Lord and of this high rank. This would be the description of a low rank. This attitude and this way of conducting yourself would be the opposite of high rank in, in Roman culture. So he's throwing, this is, this is, this is like, for the reader, if you were reading this in their culture, this would be shocking. Right? You, you build me up. You build me up in these first three things of this place of you're in God. You're superior. You have this place of revelation and truth and all the resources in heaven. And it goes through, you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus and all these things of this powerful identity of who you are. And then the practical side of how do we walk out this powerful identity? He says, walk worthy of this high call. Walk worthy of this high rank. Walk in humility and meekness and be patient what <laughs> it was like? like you, you had them stirred I'm sure they were they were who, this is good and then he throws the dagger at them <laughs> dagger. you know and cuts away that place in the heart that's driven by selfish ambition that's driven by all about me and, and so he begins the practical application of how do you live this out walk humbly Walk in meekness. That and That's a whole different concept or idea. It says here in the Passion Translation, it says, With tender humility and quiet patience, always demonstrate gentleness and generous love towards one another, especially towards those who may try your patience. Can you say he's building something right here? He's setting us up because he's going to tell us, how do we live this life? Now, in verse 3, he tells us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavor, that's a strong word, to endeavor. This is the same word root where we get enduring from. This is where he's talking about this long-suffering, being patient, bearing with one another. These are all terminology. So this is something you're going to have to work at. This is something that is not necessarily going to come natural. It's something that you have to be intentional about. This is going to be something, but because you're of such high rank, it's doable for you. Because Christ is in you. This is who you are. But you're going to have to do this on purpose. So he's laying out some purpose here for us. What are we to do? We're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, in verse 3 of the Passion, it says, be faithful to guard the sweet harmony of the Holy Spirit among you in the bonds of peace. How do we endeavor to do this? How do we endeavor to keep this spirit of peace? And he, he tells us very clearly here that it's the work of the Spirit. It's not the work of our flesh. And so while we're called to do this work, we're to to bear up underneath this work, we're responsible for to do this work, we cannot do it in and through ourselves. It, it requires this dependence on the Holy Spirit for us to walk in the type of unity He's about to describe to us. And so He goes in discussing this role. And you see both. You see both the, the work that we have to exert in order for the Spirit to work as well. Right? I mean, He tells us to do something, we've got to actually go do it. And, and what's amazing is the grace of the Lord When you step out to obey the Lord, that's where you see grace manifested. Grace is not there for you to sit there and do nothing. Grace is the power of God for you to be able to do the will of the Lord. And so in order for us to do this, we must purpose in our heart the attitude in which we're to conduct ourselves. And that attitude is humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility, gentleness, and patience that's the attitude in which we're to conduct ourselves humility or meekness gentleness or kindness or generous love is how one translation does it and patience enduring one another <laughs> bearing up with one another so that's the attitude and how do we how do we go how do we do it how do we physically move forward in this place together. It's through the work of the Spirit to keep this. We've got to work with the Spirit in keeping this bond of peace. Now, it's interesting because the bond of peace, this is the bond that creates wholeness or completeness. This word shalom, peace, is this, this same concept in the Hebrew mind. He, this is also something that we see here, this place of peace. It's not just tranquility, meaning no, no chaos, Right, we think of peace in that measure, right? That there's no chaos here, or there's no, no people aren't attacking one another. It certainly can carry that implication, but it's talking about that we're basically mature enough to walk together. We're, we're and then as we do it together, it, we're complete. We complete ourselves. And so that, how does that maturity and completion begin? It begins as a work of the Spirit, and it continues as a work of the Spirit. And so it's a it's a life that is led by the Spirit. And so then he goes on to give us what we have in common because how you know it's hard it's hard to walk the the proverb says how can two walk together unless they be in agreement and so he gives us our points of agreement or commonality why can we walk together what is our common bond and so he gives us what it is he says there is one body and he goes through these seven things there's one body there's one spirit just as you were called into one hope of your calling There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above you, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So let's just go over these seven things real quick. First of all, there is one body. There's not many bodies. There's not a bunch of different bodies. There's one body. Those that name the name of Jesus, they are part of one body. Now, they may call themselves Methodists, or they may call themselves Episcopalian over here, or they may call themselves Catholic over here, but when Jesus looks out across the world and he looks across history, what is he looking for? Those that are bought by the blood of Jesus and have put their trust and confidence in him. They are one body. We call this the universal church, which Catholic literally means universal, right? And so it's the universal church. And so while we may, be, we may belong to a church, we may not be in the body. We may go to church our whole lives, but we may not be in the body. It's the body of Christ. We have to be in Christ. And we have to be found in Him. And so there's one body, and there's one spirit. There's not many different spirits. There's one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. And He is the one who convicts. He is the one that transforms. He is the one who the grace gifts flow through. He is the one who is administering what Jesus paid for on the cross in our physical bodies, in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits, in our communities. He is the one who is manifesting the nature and character of God. That's the fruit of the Spirit, right? He is the one that Jesus said, it's far better for me to go away because when He comes, the Comforter, He will help you, He will empower you. He's your standby. He's the one who is just like me, and He'll dwell in you, and He'll speak to you the secrets of heaven. He'll reveal to you the mind of Christ. He will illuminate what I have said, and He'll show you future things. The promises of the Holy Spirit are powerful, and according to Scripture, they are yes and amen. And so we have this one one body, we have one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And what is that hope? That hope is that we will live forever and ever and ever with the Father. That we are part of His family. That we are dearly loved by Him. That this life is just, is just a, a, a brief glimpse of the eternal life that we have in Christ. And that eternal life didn't be, doesn't begin when you die. It began the moment you accepted the Lord. And so he, he goes on further and says, And one Lord... There's one in whom we, we all submit to. There's one in whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. This is really imperative, especially in the Greek culture and in the Roman culture there. Caesar was the one. He was the Lord. And here he's he's making such a countercultural claim. There is one Lord. There's one Lord. It doesn't matter what rank or file are in society, it doesn't mean the hierarchy that's out there. There is one Lord, and there is one master. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one Lord. He says there is one faith. All these other things are counterfeit faith. It's not like today we talk about there are many different types of faith. No, no. There is one faith. And that is in Christ Jesus. All others are counterfeit. All others are substituting what Adam and Eve did at the, in the garden. Where I will be like God. They're all attempting to be like God except without God. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one place of me dying to my sin and coming alive to Christ. That baptism is the immersion of this old life passing on and the new life of Christ coming in. Baptism was not only a public act of declaration that I am no longer my own but my life is Christ. But it was also a a symbolic work of the Spirit and we talked about those in, in Bible college. We talked about the the role of not only water baptism, but also the role of being baptized in the spirit of the Lord and how that throughout history, we see the the commonplace of that being worked together, but it's still a declaration that I am completely his surrendered totally unto the Lord. So there's one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so, this last part here, he says, Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and you know, in all. Read it out of the New Living Translation. It says, um, <clears throat> It says it the same way as the Passion Translation. Excuse me. My phone keeps cutting off. We're in Passion Translation. It's, it says, For, and he is the perfect Father who leads us all, works through us all, and lives in us all. Now, who is the all? Because not all people are of the Father, are they? I mean, even Jesus turned and said, "You're not of my Father; you're of your Father, the Devil." So he's not referring; he's speaking to believers here at Ephesus. He's saying, "Working in us all, working through us all." You follow me? So who is the all? It's not everybody in the world. It's all who, who claim these other six things, right? And so we see that it's working in us and through us. And then verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so this grace, this power of God for us to do the will of God, this grace which is working gifts in and through us is at work in us. And specifically he's talking about Christ's gifts. So let's look at this. He says, therefore, he says, and he quotes the scripture um, he's, he's uh, quoting Psalms 68 and 18. He says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, I know we usually fly through this part, but let me just, let me, I want to highlight this aspect. When he ascended on high, when Jesus ascended, okay, this is talking about after the, when the, we're talking about the resurrection here, we're talking about the ascension. When he ascended, what happened? All of humanity was captive by sin. All of humanity was captive by the idea of original sin. I can be like God without God. I can be like God without God. The innate creative design that God put us made us in His image to be like Him, but I'm going to do it without Him. God never created us for that purpose to be separated from Him. He created us to have a spirit to spirit union. <clears throat> well, His spirit literally dwelt on the inside of us. And there was no, <clears throat> there was no, there was no, um, separation between us and Him. Of course, when sin came on and Adam and Eve on purpose chose to separate themselves from the Spirit of the Lord and chose to p- partner with something else, specifically the devil. And to pursue a means of fulfilling their call and fulfilling their identity without God. That's when all this stuff broke down. And yet God knew that and He had already, before the foundation of the world, because we saw this in the beginning of Ephesians, had already prepared us to be in Christ. He already knew. And He had already, because Jesus, the Bible says, was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever created. for the first... Brick of material goods was ever laid in the universe. he knew what was what would have to be done, and this is where we can applaud the sovereignty of God, right He knew he knew what was going to happen, and he beforehand had already prepared a way for us he'd already prepared a substitute for our sin and for our place of breaking this place of relationship he was He was prepared God's always prepared. He's always prepared, even in our failures, even in our inabilities, even in our rejection of Him. God's always prepared and God's always ready, but the, still the psalmist still declares, but yet when the day of salvation comes, you still need to choose today. There may not be another day. Here in verse 8, when He ascended to the heights, He led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to His people. Notice that it says He ascended, and this clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world and the same who, who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. So <clears throat> let me read it out of the, the New Living Translation here. I mean, excuse me, the New King James. It says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body. So let's, just, let's kind of zero in on this. We, we spend a lot of time talking about the the fivefold ministry gifts in the Bible College, um, talking about the aspects of what these words mean, how are they, um, how, how, what are examples that we see in the New Testament, and how does that carry on into the body of Christ for each age to come. So while we, we make very clear distinctions that the original apostles were given a divine assignment of, of laying a foundation work because we read already in Ephesians that the foundation was built on the, the apostles and the prophets. They were given words and, and, and literally wrote the scriptures. Um, we, we don't have apostles and prophets writing scriptures today. But it does not mean that these gifts are not operational. They're still graces just to continue to build up the church. And so um, just a quick brief synopsis just to run through these real quick. For the apostle, the apostle, again, this was a a borrowed term that Jesus used from from that culture and from that time. An apostle in the Roman Empire would be somebody who would be certified by Rome to carry... They would have the authority of the entire Roman government. They would come in and they would set up a center of culture. They would set up to make everything in that new city that had been um, taken over to make it look like Rome. And so, interesting, um, you know, Ephesians, Philippi, these places were places that the Roman Empire went and set up these places so that um, people that were walking into these cities, they would understand how it was in Rome because it would be just like that there you following me and so these apostles were be given the task to build the culture to build teaching places to set up industry to set up government to set up how Rome does things so to speak and this, so they were it was not only a place of authority but it was a place of teaching it was a place of of putting things in place so that if you were if you were in Rome or you were in Philippi you would know you would know how things are run Because he would take that same culture and bring it about. And so the apostle for those in, in Christ, they would understand the culture of heaven. They would understand how things, and they would begin to help put things in place. And so in the, in the, in the church world today, the apostle would be somebody that would help set up things in the body of Christ for the body to grow, for the body to understand the culture of heaven, for it to be able to understand its purpose, that was part of the training that they would do as far as uh, in, the, in the Roman world was to train them how to, how to do their judicial system, how to do this type of system, how do you set these things up. And so they would be helped to set things up. Now the prophet, in the same way, the prophet would be the one that would come and they would give messages of revelation from God. So the prophet was, was basically the mouthpiece of God. He would declare what God is saying strategically, not only for the time and the season. So this would be like what we saw the sons of Issachar in the Old Testament. They would understand the times and seasons and they would have strategies. They would have insight. They would have revelation. But they also, the prophet would also be able to foretell what needed to be done. And so the prophet would be one who would say, this is what I see on the horizon. This is what's about to take place. Um, This is what we need to do to prepare. This is what we need to get ourselves ready. This is what God's about to do. And so this was this is the part of the work of this grace gift to prepare the body, to mobilize. And of course, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets look slightly different than the New Testament prophets, right? Um, We saw them... Uh, functioning in a different way. The Old Testament prophets function more to the degree of, of helping the nation of Israel establish that nation to keep that nation on course, to help the people understand where they were going. I mean, oftentimes those prophets would also prophesy to other nations. Very rarely did you see those prophets engaging in, um, in activity. That would be calling people to God as far as like individually, it'd be over nations. However, their message was always what? To come back to God. And so it was always challenging, it was provoking, it was countercultural, it was to bring them back to that place so that what God was desiring to do in and through them could be established. So in the New Testament, we see that as well. We see people who have what we call a prophetic calling on their lives to challenge People to challenge the status quo, to challenge the church to rise up, to challenge the church to, to be more intimate with God, to challenge the people to, to grow in their calling and to prepare them for things that are coming. And so while, while oftentimes the, the, the thing that, um, mystifies a prophet is, oh, they know something that's to come, but, in many ways, the, the, the power of the prophet is not the, the foreknowledge of future events. It's the place of intimacy that he's calling you to. And so the prophet is calling us to a deeper place of intimacy. It's calling us to a place of walking with God. Okay? And so <clears throat> that's often how you see the prophetic flowing today is you see a ministry that's driven to call people to a deeper walk with God. Calling them to this place, and then we see um, the evangelist, um, which literally means the the messenger of hope or the messenger of the gospel. This also is is like a messenger, but this is this is carrier of good news. Okay, so this would be a runner that would be sent out that would evangelize. They would share the message. You know, they didn't have newspapers back then. Um, they, didn't have, they didn't have internet, they didn't have their cell phones where they could pop up and all of a sudden you could read the Washington Times or what was happening at CNN or Fox News or whatever. It, it would be this person who would be the runner of the message, you know, the runner of what was taking place. And they would come from town to town and they would unroll their scroll and they would say, da this is the declaration of the king, this is the message. And everybody would, go, what, as soon as they heard that person was coming to town, they would all gather at the center, at the seat of the town, at the gate of the town, to hear what the message would be. So this was a word used before the church? Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, I know uh, Yeah, same with apostle. In the, in the Aramaic, apostle it could even be apostle said, called right? preacher. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so in, in Aramaic, it would literally be called a preacher or a declarer. So they would literally stand up and they would shout in the city, this is what's come. Or, you know, they would bear this news. Except most of the time when, um, when messengers like that would come, they would come to bring bad news. The Romans are coming. Or what, you know, they they would, like, y'all are all going to get killed. They would come with horrible news. And that's pretty much what our society hears today as well, right? You flip on the news, what do you hear? Bad news, right? So, so the evangelist, the evangelist is a current, current individual who understands what's happening right here, right now. But they bring a message of hope. They bring the good news. Okay, so news is is current events, right? Because if it happened yesterday, it's not news. It's, That's history, (laughs) right? It's not news. So news is something that's happening right right now. And so the gospel is not a message about what happened 2,000 years ago. It's what can happen right now as a result of what happened 2,000 years ago. You you follow what I'm saying? The gospel is not what happened you know, with Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's what's happening right now because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He's alive and he's working right now. And so oftentimes that's what that's where we fail in our evangelizing is we try to bring them back into the past and we don't make it current and make it real as good news. He's alive and he's working right now. And as a result of what he did on the cross, this is what he's wanting to do right here, right now. See the difference in the way I even approach that? And so the evangelist is that urgency, the moment, the right here, right now. It brings the message of hope, the good news, the gospel, into declaration. So not only are they mobilizing themselves, but as a result, their message mobilizes the body. Okay? To share the good news. Then we have the pastor, which we also is can be translated, the shepherd, the one who tends to, who nurtures, who protects the flock. Um, these are all terminologies that are Appropriate for this this gift or this grace gift, a nurturer, a protector, a provider. This is a person who, who would gather people up. In one place, you would even say a steward of the body of Christ, to steward the people, to watch over the people to make sure that they're given the bread at the proper hour, to give the nourishment that they need and so forth. Just like the the shepherds that literally would tend to the sheep, they would carry those flocks, they would survey the fields and they would move them from pasture to pasture to make sure that they got what they needed, make sure they got the water that they needed make sure there was nothing coming to attack the flock, making sure that he was uh, on, not only aware of what was happening in the flock, but what was happening outside the flock, so that he could make sure that they were brought to the right places at the right time and the right seasons. Right? Because you didn't want to go to really high country when it was cold. You didn't want to go into really low country when it was hot. You wanted to keep those places at the right places at the right time. And so the shepherd's place was was surveying and understanding what the great shepherd Jesus Christ wanted for those people to be able to be nurtured to grow and to be who they're called to be and so what with the natural shepherd that's doing sheep what was the what was the um what is the the value of the sheep I mean, what do you get off sheep? You get your wool, right, and then you also have good meat, right? Lambs. You made a lamb chop lately. Los Fagones has great ones, by the way, and um, he grills them to perfection. Now I'm hungry, Los Fagones. But um, so you have both in the the wool of the sheep, but also in the meat of the sheep. Well, in order to get in the meat, you got to kill them, right? <laughs> so in order in order to get the substance, so no, I'm, I'm being serious. Yeah. In order to get the substance out of the people, you've got to convince them to die. Die to self. Die to their wants and desires. In order to get the true gold that's on the inside, that treasure in earthen vessels, you have to lay your life down. Not just for Christ, but for one another. I mean, That's the result of laying your life down before Christ. You lay it down for one another. And so the shepherd has to do that. So the message is that you're valuable what you carry is valuable your wool right what you carry is valuable but you yourself are valuable if you lay your life down interesting huh you don't ever think about it from that perspective do you and then and then finally we see the teacher the teacher is the the one who is we call the word rabbi or teacher, the one who's instructing in truth. And they're the ones who are bringing us into alignment with the thoughts and heart of God. So they are, they are aligning us to flow with God. So what's the, what's the essential part of the teacher? Um, in one translation, the word teacher has the implication of flowing like water. And, of course, we know symbolically that the water, the Word is like water. What? That washes over you, that cleanses you. We understand that Scripture is given for, is, is given by inspiration from God for the purpose of teaching, instruction. For what? For correction, for rebuke, for encouragement, for edification. We read in, in Psalms um, 119, the longest chapter in, in Psalms, about how powerful the Word of God is. We read in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, how the Word is alive and powerful and active. And the teacher is engaging us with the activity of what God has said and how to rightly apply it. And that's a big deal, right? Because knowing what God said and rightly applying it are two different things. Oftentimes, we can see people understanding what God is saying but not an understanding how to apply what He's saying. And so it's it's essential to have this gift as well, so that we can begin to understand how do we walk. And this is exactly what he's doing now. Paul is actually, in a way, teaching them, right, how to walk worthy of the call. He's, he's lining up these principles, showing us the attitude in which we're to walk, showing us what's common that makes us a part of the faith, right, is showing us what to do here. And so, but for what purpose are all these five gifts? He gives us such a very clear um, concept of why God gave us these five grace gifts. And really, these five grace gifts, they're Christ's gift. They are a part of the nature of Christ, whereas the fruit of the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit. They're the nature of the Holy Spirit. They're the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These gifts are Christ's gifts. They are attributes of Christ, meaning He is giving these grace gifts Two different individuals in the body for the purpose of Jesus being manifested not only in the body but in and through all people. In other words, Jesus showed up. What happened? The apostles began to follow him. They were the disciples at the time. They began to follow him and they began to learn from him. Right? So they began to, I'm sure uh, Peter. Had certain well, you see that even in the Gospels, they each learned different things from them because the way they wrote the Gospels, you saw differences of how they viewed things and how they saw things, because we each we all learn differently, we all gather things differently, and so they each were expressing different aspects of what they learned from Christ, and so that's why it's needed that we that he gave these gifts out. It wasn't like there was one apostle, one prophet. One evangelist and that was it. There were many that he gave out. He gave he gave these gifts out to men. Alright? So, and that's a you know, not just men, but men and women, humanity is what we term we all understood that term until nineteen nineties, right? <laughs> until they started trying to switch everything around. Humanity, right? So he gave it to all for the purpose of what? He tells you really clearly right here. He says what? For what reason? So that they will do what? So the perfecting of the saints or to build them up. For what? For what purpose? Why are they getting built up? For the work of the ministry. In other words, these gifts are not here as a hierarchy to worship people. These gifts are foundational to build people up. In other words, the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, these gifts... Or If if you were looking at a a graph, here's, here's Jesus, the cornerstone, right? He's the one who lines up how the building lines, okay? And you have the apostles. What did I just do there? You have the prophets, okay? But you also have the rest of these gifts that are helping line things up, and they're the... These two are the foundational thing, but then you're building up with the message, building them up with the teacher, building them up with the pastor, brick upon brick, because we're all living stones in the temple, right? The the analogy that we were given. And so these are all being built up, but it's being built upon. So it's not like you have right. Jesus at the pinnacle. Jesus came and laid His life down for us. He's at the base. He came down and we all worship Him and honor Him, Right? But he came to lay his life down, not that we could serve him. And it's the model that he gave for all those that would walk after him that we're not here to be worshipped or magnified or to be glorified. We're here to lay our lives down in the same way that Jesus did. And so the apostle and prophet and the evangelist and teacher, they're here at the base and the other lives are built up upon them. We're not here to exalt ourselves. We're here to exalt Jesus. And the result of exalting Jesus, all men will come to him and we begin to build people up, not in their identity outside of Christ, but build them up in Christ. Right. Or otherwise, we're doing exactly what Satan did. Getting them there without God. And I'm here to tell you, that's happening in some churches. They are self-helping them all the way to hell. Right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know of any other way to say that, and that's not to be condemning or judgmental towards anybody, but if we, take, if we take him out of the equation, that's exactly what Satan did in the garden. We can't take Christ out of the equation. That's where our true identity lies. People won't understand who they are unless they have Christ. And so, he goes on to further to describe what's taking place. He says, for, so these are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body or the building up of the body. So we need these things. We need these gifts, these grace gifts, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a measure of the statute of the fullness of God. So there's quite a bit here to unpack. I'm not going to go through all of it because I want to go through the whole chapter, but um, just a a couple key points here and this is the point I made, unity takes work. Unity takes work. And the work is both vertically and horizontally. Vertically, we must stay before the Lord and continue to be led by the Spirit. We must allow the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures to challenge us, to call us to a higher place, to engage us and build us up, we know that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and so therefore we must continually be hearing what God is saying. So that's part of the vertical aspect of our walk with God. We must engage in those things with the Lord, taking communion, spending time in His presence, um, spending time in prayer. These are all important aspects of spiritual disciplines, but they are they are intimate, relational components of walking with God and walking worthy of our call. But we also must walk, we also have horizontal challenges that take place in that we must recognize how God is moving on one another. We must encourage and build up one another. If we see a brother or sister in sin, we're to go, the, go to that one, not with judgment, not with condemnation, but with truth in love. So there's this dynamic of protecting, holding each other accountable, uh, giving Giving them and holding them accountable is not just for the things that they've done wrong, but also holding them accountable for who they are. Amen. Right? Amen. And that's, this is, this is not who you, that's who you used to be when you were in sin. Right. This is who you are in Christ. Challenging them in this way. And what happens? He says, as we do these things, as these grace gifts are functioning, as the body's being built up, what's happening, we're coming into the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, so so we've got to know Him. Intimate knowledge, know Him. Intimate knowledge that produces something. Just knowing about God is not sufficient. We're talking about knowing God that changes you on the inside. A knowledge that when you spend time with God and you walk with God, that it does something on the inside of you. I mean, it it, it, it changes you, it transforms you, it sets you on fire. I'm People, people that talk about, well, yeah, I know God, and their life hadn't changed. No, you didn't know God. Right? If you really knew God, something changed on the inside of you. Something broke. (laughs) Something shattered. Something new came in. I mean, it was there was something. There was something changed dramatically. I didn't think the way I used to think. I didn't look the way I looked. I mean, everything shifted. And are there still things that have to be changed? Absolutely. But the driving force in my life is, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to fulfill your will. I want to accomplish your purposes. Something shifts in that. It's no longer just about me. It's about what do you want? How do you want to do it? And so, the working of this is the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the nature of the fullness of Christ. The New Living Translation says it this way. It says um, in verse what verse was that, verse 13, it says, This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. And this is an interesting way of translating this passage, but this is exactly the point of the Scripture here, is that it brings us, it shows us where the mark is. Where's the mark? It's Christ. He's the mark. We are to mature. Our maturity level, our aim, is what? At Christ. We're not comparing ourselves to who we used to be. We're not comparing ourselves to one another. That causes division and competition that is not holy. But when we are walking with God, and these grace gifts, the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelists are building people up in Christ, the goal, the standard, the way of doing things is Jesus Himself. And so what is this? it's pushing us to mature, to come to that standard. Well, isn't it interesting that what is sin? It's where you miss the mark. You miss the mark. So sin is not just what we categorize as far as... The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, those are all encompassing of what the sin is. But the Bible makes it clear that sin is where we know to do good and don't do it. What is the good? Je- Jesus made it very clear. No one is good, no, not one. But who is good? God. And so we see, what is the mark then? And that's why you know you brought that, that book up. Is it good or is it God? Good is not in the mark. It's God. God is the mark. Our human understanding of good is not the mark. Because our human understanding of good is exactly what Satan enticed Adam and Eve with. It's God. And so they're calling them to what? Maturity. That word perfect means maturity in Scripture. So if you're wondering where that came from, some translations call it perfect. This is calling maturity or completion. Our aim is Christ. To be in Him To be flowing with his desires, with his heart. And so, that's the goal, that the body of Christ would come to maturity in Christ. That we would reach that standard. What, for what purpose? That's always the question, right? So why? Why do we, what, what, what does this get us? Jesus is accurately represented in the earth. I mean, hello, if we're his body, then what the body should do? They should, they should run into it and be like, even if you didn't see Mike's head, we're like, oh, we know this is Mike's body. Right? Even if, even if they can't physically see the form of Jesus walking around, they can. Because you and I are. Oh, that's the body of Christ. Oh, that's Jesus walking around. That's why he says, walk worthy of this high call. Because when you're walking around, what's happening? You're revealing Jesus. And this is part of the reason that God gave these grace gifts in the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher is to challenge the body, call the body to this higher place so that as we, talking about the body of Christ, walk around, what do people see? They see the Lord. They see Jesus. And so he goes on to say, verse 13, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro And carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. So we're back to this body um, analogy. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let me just stop right there and just kind of unpack a couple of these things. So what does he say here? These grace gifts are for the purpose of maturing the body to the standard of Christ. Then what happens? We'll no longer be like children tossed around. By every wind of doctrine. And the, what is, it's the trickery of men, it's the cunning craftiness, the deceitfulness. This is exactly what Satan used in the garden. I don't, if you can't see the parallel between the concepts here, it's so very plain. Let me read out of the New Living Translation. It says in verse 14, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth, instead, so opposing that, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ who is the head of this body, the church, and he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work and it helps other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. He says... With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life of God that God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But this isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, so here's the opposing, this is how we're supposed to walk. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all part of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Or how to say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, so here's the opposing, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So how do we live as children of the light? How do we live under the standard of Christ? Well, he gives us several things throughout that whole thing that I read you of how do we do that. We, he shows you what not to do, and he shows you what to do. He shows you what it looks like for the world to be in operation in you, or the devil, versus what Christ looks like in operation of you. Okay? I, I just want to challenge you to go back and reread that whole section there, and, and even for your own purposes, lay out a diagram. Write out all the things he says you're not, And write all the things that you are. That will help you see what is your true identity. What does it look like for you to walk with God? And these specifically are dealing with attitudes, thoughts, and actions. Attitudes, thoughts, and actions. How I think, how I think and perceive the world affects my attitude. My attitude then affects how I do it, right? The attitude in which we do it is a big deal. Huge deal. Because it can it can be the defining mark between whether we look like Jesus or not. That's why in the very beginning he said, "Walk well, worthy of the call," and then he laid out three attitudes that we're to carry. And this is kind of like the this is the standard bearer for you measure your act, your attitudes against those three things: humility, generous love, or, 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 or kindness, or gentleness. And then patience or long suffering, endurance. Do you carry those attitudes? Those are attitudes that he says that we have to have in order to walk worthy of the call. And when you when you throw those up against, like, for example, he talks about being angry and using foul abusive language, it doesn't fit, does it? Those don't those don't line up. Or he talks about you know you putting away deceit and and lust that doesn't fit. That's not congruent with who Christ is. Or he talks about you know bitterness and slandering and all types of evil behavior. Those don't fit with that attitude. You can't you can't have that attitude and have these actions. And so he's laying out for us what is that way? How do you respond? So so what does he say here? He says instead, don't let your anger control you. Instead, do what? Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You know, don't don't use your hands for this, for stealing and stuff. But what? Do good. Do hard work. Work for your living. Then he says what, what do you do is, don't use foul abusive language instead be good and helpful so your words may encourage those that hear you don't you know he goes on to say don't um, don't bring sorrow to the holy spirit don't grieve listen the holy spirit's at work in you whether you're yielding to him or not when you said yes to Jesus the holy spirit began to work in you and when we choose to to grieve the holy spirit this is a serious this is a serious serious issue because we have we talked about this in Bible College as well you have you have the quenching of the spirit the quenching of the Spirit, this is where I simply am resistant to what God's doing. Maybe it's uncomfortable, maybe it's hard, maybe it's just outside the box of how I normally do things, and so the Holy Spirit is stirring our hearts to go one way, and we either ignore Him, or, or we just hesitate in that place to truly engage what He's trying to do. We quench the Holy Spirit. But then you have the grieving, which is another level. This is where we create great sorrow. This is where we greatly affect the emotional place of the Spirit of the Lord. He's extremely emotional, not in emotions like we think, but he is, he he grieves in ways that we can't imagine because he's God. When he knows the capacity in which we were called, he knows the the depths in which Jesus paid the price for us so that we could walk in freedom, and then he watches us, that he knows that we have everything available, all resources in heavenly places according to, to Ephesians 1, that we are partakers with the promise and with Christ. We're joint heirs with Christ. He knows all these things about us and yet we oppose the nature that God has given us and we walk purposefully in sinful attitudes in, na- in, in, the, way of, in the way of the world. We, in other words, we know to do it this way but on purpose we choose to go opposed to the way that Christ... Like We know we're to forgive but instead we continue to slander and gossip and backbite and run our mouths against Him. It's where, it's where we grieve the Holy Spirit. He literally mourns he grieves. He's full of sorrow. This is, this is a in, very intense word. I don't have time to get into the, the dynamics of this. But this is part of the, the what happened in Jesus when He stood over uh, Jerusalem and He said, I would have gathered you like a, a, a hen would gather her chicks. Yeah, you rejected my loving compassion, my tender mercies. He grieved over that. And so this grief is the re- result of purposefully choosing to oppose the work of God. So it's the one thing where you just simply resist and uh, uh hesitant, but now I'm going to actually fight against the Holy Spirit? I'm not just going to ignore what he's saying. I'm going to do the opposite of what he's saying. You can see this in, in raising children where you can tell the kid, Hey, take out the trash, and they simply forget. That's quenching the flow of the Spirit, right? But it's another thing when they came and take the trash and throw it over your room. I'm not taking this trash nowhere. You're thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. now we don't have, now we have, they're not only not listening, I don't use an extreme case, you know, not, I've never seen that happen, but uh, if it did, that would be kind of like what's happening in the Spirit, right? Where we take what we were given as a responsibility. And we're not only do we forsake the responsibility, we do the opposite. Instead of instead of bringing a place to help, yes, but 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 what's grieving is not just the action; it's the heart attitude yeah, behind it. And that's what the Holy Spirit is grieving at is because not only is the action because again, we, what did I have you right now thoughts, attitudes, and actions. The actions display a deeper issue, and when we grieve. It's, it's exposing something that's deeper. And so we're, we should not be doing that. We should be engaging and working and yielding to the Holy Spirit so that Christ can be formed in our hearts and in our lives. The last part there, and then we'll close with this in verse 32 his response to bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender hearted. Forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Now, interestingly, he's writing this about walking worthy of the call to what? The body of Christ. So he's not saying that these are things that are taking place out in the world. He's saying these are things that can take place in the church. Oh, so that puts a little different perspective, right? Because we were thinking as we were reading it, In talking about it, we were thinking about the world versus God. But he's talking about in the church, these things can take place. I've seen it. We probably all have, right? We've all seen the bitterness, the anger, the rage, the unforgiveness, the slander. In the church. In the church. -hmm. He's talking to the body of Christ. These These things can take place in us if we don't, on purpose, walk worthy of our call. We don't on purpose make Jesus the standard. If we don't on purpose and it with intentionality spend time with the Lord and honor those around us, so I know we whew, we kind of went after it today and kind of laid it all out there. But I, I want I want us to, I want to pray over us um, in kind of zeroing in on this 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 mindset that we see that Paul's calling us to. That we move from immaturity to maturity. That we move from worldly mindsets to Christ mindsets. That we move from walking in the world versus walking in Christ. And that uh, we can be in Christ and be a part of the body, and yet very clearly we can see that there can be workings in us that are not of Him. And so part of the, part of the, this practical application that Paul is laying out of, that's why he, he began with the need for god's power, right he, These prayers that he prayed in chapters one and chapter two was that we would know not only the love of God but the power of God that was working in us to do exceedingly abundantly above. why because when we when we simply look at ourselves and we do self evaluation and we begin to and we begin to take the word and use it like a mirror and look at and we look at ourselves in the Word we can we can get real depressed real quick because <laughs> the word has the ability to pull out what's not god in us according to hebrews chapter 4 it, i mean it, it it reveals what is god and what's not what's the will of god what's not and so when we look at scriptures like these and we begin to look who am i and who am i called to be in christ uh, it can be very depressing when we look at just in our own strength and what we've done and yet we're called to look at it. We're called to 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 hear the the divine call to come higher, to come up where I am. To you know, in in biblical terms, in the Old Testament, God had to call Moses up on the mountain to spend time face to face with Him, and and that's really a parallel of what we're called to do. For for another uh, Old Testament idea, God called Abraham out of the people into a land He did not know. For um, Joseph, he called him out of his family into Egypt, and though the means in which he got there was rough, right? In slavery, in hardship, in, in prison. It was all part of the work of God to get him to the place so that Christ could be revealed through him. And so when we read in scriptures and so forth, there's this calling to come higher in God, to, to not higher in the fact that you lord over people, not higher that now people worship you or serve you, but higher in our way of doing things that are like Him, with all humility, with gentleness, with all patience. We're doing it by the work of the Spirit. And so I just want to pray for us that we would allow this work of the Word of the Lord to have its way in us, and that our vertical walk with the Lord increases exponentially, that we find that in all things, all things we're doing it unto the Lord. In all things, we're engaging the work of the Spirit. In all things, we're dependent on the grace of God. In all things, that we are drawing on what He's said to us and stepping out in obedience. But then also, that we're recognizing that we also are part of a body. And and we, we didn't really tie into this part as much as I would like to just because of time purposes. But we recognize that each joint supplies strength to the other members. And so... We, we draw strength from one another because God's working in you as an individual, not just between you and God, but for the purposes of you being able to minister grace to others around you. And so we must value the work of God in one another as well. And that takes, and that takes an enduring work of the Spirit in us as well to be able to recognize the gold in each other. To be able to recognize God working in and through each other. To recognize the grace on each other's lives. And and to continue on. Because it's easy to be angry with one another. It's easy to have issues with people. When you live in a big family. You can have that every day, right? You can find that quickly. You can find the faults in people. But we've got to have that same mind of God to be able to connect with one another. And encourage one another. Build each other up. Draw strength from one another. He says that's what we're supposed to be doing. And as we do that, we all the goal is that we all mature in Christ so that the world sees him. But how, how, can we, how can we say that we love the world if we can't love our brother or sister beside us? And so we have these, these two distinct calls that are tied into one. Because anybody who, who really goes after God can't help but to love one another. Right, I mean, it's just it's part of his nature. Because as we draw near to God, and He draws near to us, the Holy Spirit causes His love to be shed abroad in our hearts. And First John makes it abundantly clear: if we claim to know God but don't walk as He walked, then we're, we're deceiving ourselves. We're liars. We say we love God, but we hate our brother. We're liars. Because it, the work of God in our hearts to truly love God transforms us. Because that means His love. In order to love God the way He's called us to love means it has to be the Holy Spirit's work of love in us. And that work of the Holy Spirit love being poured out in our hearts transforms our hearts to begin to walk as Christ walked on the earth, to lay our lives down for others. So, Father, we just thank You for the Word. We thank You for that it's life-giving. We thank You, uh, even as we read it and, and talked about it, uh, you could sense, even in the atmosphere, the the thickness of your your mercy, your goodness, your grace. We, We certainly do recognize that the sin of Adam and Eve was trying to be like you without you. And so God, we ask you to forgive us for any place in our lives where we have accommodated the Adamic spirit by simply ignoring you, resisting you, quenching your spirit, even grieving your spirit. Forgive us, Lord, for our lives not coming into agreement with what you paid for. So we ask you to cleanse us, wash us. May those attitudes that are not of you that we read here in Ephesians 4, the rage, the slander, the bitterness, the lust, all these things that He said, don't do that instead. Be this. God, we just pray for, for consecrating our hearts, sanctifying us, separating us unto your holy way and helping us by your grace to be an accurate representation of who you are. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing that. We thank you for the people that you place in our lives that are grace gifts. Every single one of us carry grace. And so each one of us carry different dynamics of who you are. And so I just pray that a, a new level of honor and appreciation, thanksgiving towards the people in the body of Christ that you've positioned us with. God, may we, may we see them as you see them. And may we may we honor the work that You're doing in their lives. And as a result, may we all find that strength and that exchange of life that takes place through our union with one another, our unity to this purpose, that Jesus be revealed in the earth. Because if Jesus is lifted up, You'll draw all men unto Yourself. And that becomes our goal. It's our desire. That people would come to know You. A knowledge of You that doesn't just fill the head but transforms the heart. And that's what we ask for us today. God, we don't want to just have head knowledge of your scripture. We want our hearts transformed. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing that. Thank you for this week being filled with transformative moments in your spirit as these words wash over us, as you take them and challenge us in deeper ways, and as we see your way of doing things versus our way. And Father, as we do that, we thank you that um, we'll look more and more like Jesus will rise to that place of maturity. And as a result, people will be changed and transformed. So thank You, Lord, for doing it. Thank You for being with us. We give You praise and honor for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.